0: Well, uh, when we first started, uh, or when I first started here on Wednesday night, the go- my goal for Wednesday night was really, and I said this all the way back at the very, very, very beginning, so nearly five years ago now, uh, was really to kind of arm us or equip us and to kind of set up tripwires in your, in your brains, <laughs> in your soul maybe. Um, that when you hear doctrine that is contrary to true doctrine, that it would sort of trigger those little tripwires and ring a bell and kind of kind of raise a red flag and sort of go, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Um, and so there are times where that has led us through uh, portions of Scripture where we just, you know, deal with the text that's in front of us, like we've been going through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and things like that. And then there were other times where we dive into deep doctrinal things that are things that we understand as implications from Scripture, which is something of of where we are now. Um, This evening, we're going to be really there. We're going to be talking about the deity and humanity of Christ, the uh, hypostatic union, as it were, uh, of the human and divine nature of Christ. That requires a little bit of your thinking caps, all right? So, just so you know, there's gonna be a little bit sometime, maybe a little bit deeper stuff that we talk about that's still very, very important for the concept of salvation. So, just to review where we've been over the last couple of weeks, last week especially, we really dealt with the sin nature of a person, born into guilt, uh, that the concept that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners and not condemned because when I got to a certain age, I committed a sin, and that sealed my fate forever. The fact that we die is evidence of the fact that we're fallen. We are a fallen creature from the womb. And obviously, Paul points out on Romans and several other places we went through those scriptures. But, um, so just as a review, remember, in, in the sight of God, Adam's sin was the sin of all his descendants. So, when Adam sinned, all died. All were there with him. He was the covenant head for every single person born of man and woman. That was, we were all there under Adam's seed. And so we were all, we all have to deal with that inner corruption, that immediate guilt that we have simply by being of the species of mankind. But because of our corruption, what that means is that we're condemned. You're born condemned. And there's nothing that we are capable of doing of overcoming that. So it's not like somebody can be born and then say, well, I'm going to make all the right decisions and I'm going to overcome all of those obstacles. Uh, No one born of man and woman can possibly ever do that and overcome all of those obstacles and and somehow overcome the flesh and submit to the lordship of, of Christ. We, we all resist that by our very nature because we're connected to Adam. And so we also said, then uh, since we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, the sinner can in no way do anything that meets the perfect demands of the holy law of God. You're condemned from the beginning. So further, the sinner is unable to change his preferences and his desires for sin so that he may turn uh, to love God instead. So we, we dealt with, uh, Ephesians 2, 1-10 at length, um, but it, it, it depicts a pretty bleak scenario, Paul does, in Ephesians 2, when he says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, or you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in disobedience, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and, and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, But then he changes in verse 4 to say, "...but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us in, with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. them. So so Paul is, is painting this bleak picture on the front end of what humanity is connected to Adam. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But God is the one that makes us alive. By grace you have been saved. This is not of your own doing. So we're going to take a slight step to the right tonight um, in the in what we talk about Jesus' nature. It seems like that will be disconnected from what we're talking about now, the salvation of humanity. We've been talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins before this, and now we're talking about the humanity and deity of Christ. But you understand that this topic is essential for understanding how can Jesus be the one that saves us? How can he do what we never could do? How can he overcome those things that was impossible for us to overcome? So this is sort of, a, a if you will, a, a not attractive-looking little Lego piece that we got to put in there in order to build the rest of the structure. All right, This kind has of to, has to be put in there. So, let's try to understand what's being said here, and and inevitably, this is going to take us into a little discussion of this whole concept of the Trinity, which is really difficult to wrap our minds around, right? And so, frequently, when it comes to the topic of the Trinity, most of us just sort of throw up our hands and go, I don't know, right? Or we come up with these little clever ways of explaining it that end up in heresy, all right? And, and, and we, we wanted them to be useful tools to explain the Trinity, and all of a sudden it's like, not only does that not explain the Trinity, that's actually a false gospel, right? So we want to avoid all those, we want to understand that, and actually realize what God has revealed to us. It'd be fine to say, ah, it's a mystery we can't understand, so long as God has been silent on it. But in as much as He has told us some things, It's our job to really know those things, and we we need to strive to understand those things. So, let's begin here. First, just uh, the person of Christ. Um, If all of this follows, this sin that we've been talking about, sin nature, then what that means is that there is an ethical distance between God and man. Because of the, the fall of man, there is a distance between us, which we can't bridge, angels can't bridge, no one can really bridge of their own power. And as such, um, or, or, or and is as such virtually a cry for divine help. In other words, God has to help us. So Christology, that is Christology, Christology is in part the answer to that cry. Understanding the nature of Christ is, uh, is an answer to that cry. Um, so Christology, what that means is, Christology is a branch of Christian theology relating to the person, nature, and role of Christ. Person, nature, and role of Christ. It's the study of Christ. That's what literally Christology means, the study of Christ. It's relating to His person, His nature, and His role. It's all the things concerning Jesus Christ Himself. And it helps us to understand the work that God actually accomplished in Christ to be that bridge that ha- that where the chasm of sin has separated us from God. It helps us to understand that how Christ can possibly be that bridge. So it shows us God coming to mankind to do the saving, to accomplish the saving. If it's true that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, then God has to actually do something. So this part where Paul says, God made us alive. He did it. He was the one that did it. Well, how did he do it? Well, Christ came first, right? That's, we have to fundamentally understand that. Then there was a moment in time where you live now, where your eyes were opened to salvation. Well, God had to do that too because you're dead. And then every day I wake up and my heart has to be stirred towards Christ. Well, God has to do that too, keeping you in the faith and helping you to persevere. And then Christ has to come back, right? Well, God has to do that too or salvation isn't complete. So we see God's involved in the whole process. So it shows God coming to man to remove all of the barriers between God and man by meeting the conditions of the law in Christ. So it's not as though God's commands can be compromised. We might think that on the surface, and perhaps we might think that that's what we want Him to do, is just sort of fudge the books a little bit, right? Is sort of like go, I know I said this is the standard, but they're never going to be able to meet that. So why don't I just lower the bar? Well, that's not going to work if you're a just God. If he's a God that, that, that is, is just internally, he, he can't be anything other than just. And if that's the case, then his divine law, his holy law, has to be satisfied. But you understand, the author of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats would never satisfy. But that's what's prescribed to us in the law, isn't it? Is the blood of bulls and goats. Well, here, here's, how you, here's how you do it. But you have to understand that the law of Moses is more or less a half measure. Its design is to expose sin. Its design is not for you to reach the holiness of God. That's that's not its purpose. That never was its purpose for any of the Jews to live up to the law to such an extent that they would ever say, finally, I'm righteous. That's never the law's intent. Paul is very clear in the New Testament, the law's purpose was to expose sin. In fact, in the law, sin increased. Why? Because he said, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. And all of a sudden, everybody was doing that, that, and that. And so what is the result? Condemnation increases because we're born dead, and we desire sin. And so everybody, 100% of everybody on the earth, prior to Jesus, all transgressed the law of God. And all the law was, was proof that man couldn't do it. Right? So Jesus comes in in Matthew, and he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes the law. And then what he does is not say, yeah, you should do that. He says, it's more than that. You've heard it said, Don't murder. I say to you, if anyone's angry with his brother, because what Jesus is coming to do is say, look, the law was here. What I'm coming to do is give you the law of heaven. What does it look like in heaven? In other words, if you were to go there right now and you were to see the angels serving around the throne of God, what would it look like? Would the angels just not be killing each other? Or would they not even be angry with each other? How does it work in heaven? What does the law actually look like in heaven? Well, if it's obeyed in heaven, then it seems like they wouldn't even be angry with each other, right? There would be no backbiting. There would be no sexual immorality. There would be no hint of any kind of immorality, yes? So what Jesus is saying is, you want me to fill the law... And you say that I'm 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 overstepping my bounds in the law. You have not I'm not only coming to obey the law of Moses, every jot and tittle. I'm coming to fulfill it, to give you its fullest meaning. Its fullest meaning is what it looks like in heaven. So when he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The law that Jesus is coming to bring that you're to obey is exactly what it looks like in heaven. This is what the law really is. The law of Moses is a half measure. And you couldn't obey that. Right? So, if we're to really reach the righteousness of God, if we're to really get to that point, it's not the law of Moses we have to obey. It's everything that Christ was. It's obeying the law of of heaven, so to speak. Okay, so... Um, so, Christ had to come down and, fu- and meet the law, essentially, and beyond, uh, in order to fulfill the righteousness of God. So, therefore, before we can really understand the work of Christ, we have to understand the person of Christ. And in order to understand the, the person of Christ, that has to be both biblical and historical. So we have to understand what the Bible says about it, but I'm going to be honest with you. As we read the verses of Scripture, sometimes we can walk away with two different understandings of what was stated there, right? So what our job is to do is not only understand what the Bible says, but then is that consistent with what Christians have believed for 2,000 years? And what we find is these are, especially the doctrine of Christ, The church has wrestled for a long time to try to wrap its mind around who Christ is and His nature and understanding what's being said to us about Him in Scripture. So it's it's important that we understand how people have tried to attempt to explain who Christ is and have failed miserably. It's important that we understand that so that we can avoid those landmines. But then it's also important that we understand how the church has explained Christ in a helpful way that's true to Scripture, that we can actually kind of walk down that road instead, right? Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? Okay. We're not to the complicated part yet, so... Okay. (laughs) All right, so in Christianity, this next bullet point, in Christianity... Uh, Christ is human and divine. He's the Son of Man, but also the Son of God. His sinless character is maintained, and He is regarded as a proper object of worship. So, conceiving of how someone could possibly be fully and truly of two different natures Although easy enough for the first century Christians to articulate, you read it in Paul, he he just says it, and he just moves on, right? Seems pretty easy for him. As easy as it was for them to articulate, uh, Christians began uh, began to be resisted by many heretical doctrines early on that still continue to this day. Um, And what you find in these heretical doctrines, invariably... Is people either want to preserve his deity and give up his humanity, or they want to preserve his humanity and give up his deity. Normally, it's one of the two. I mean, like 99.99%. In fact, I'll just say 100% of the time. You can bet that Jehovah's Witnesses on your door, there is a mistake that they're making in one of the two ways when it comes to Jesus. All right? So, uh, same with Mormons, same with anybody. They're they're going to make a mistake one way or the other. And so these heretical doctrines started to pop up uh, in resistance to what was taught very clearly and simply in the Bible. And so what became necessary is for the church to come together and go, wait a second, wait a second, guys. Let's talk about this. It doesn't seem like Paul is saying this. That's not consistent with Scripture. It doesn't seem like he's saying that or, or that the rest of the Bible is saying this about Jesus. Let's, let's, let's just define in, in the simplest terms we can what the Bible is actually saying about Jesus. And so sometimes we can get in a little bit of trouble. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes we can get in a little bit of trouble when we seek to kind of put a lot of flesh and bones on the nature of how two natures can come together and exist in the same person, right? This is not the same thing, by the way, as we would say, uh, you are maybe. Let's say you are a brother, you are also an uncle, you are also a father, right? Like you, you. Some people have sought to illustrate Christ. This is how, this is how we understand how he's. God and man, you know, and we relate it to ourselves like that. But that's not what we're saying about Jesus. That's not the difficulty about Jesus. Those are titles that everyone amasses over time. That's not the same thing as having two entirely different natures inside one person. Understanding that relationship can get a little dicey. And so here's how some people have sought to do it. There there was a group uh, called the Ebionites, And they felt really constrained because most of them came from a Jewish background. And so they have heard for their whole life, monotheism, 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 monotheism. God is one, God is one, God is one. And so the New Testament writers come in and they say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And all they hear from that is, God is two? No, God is one. So, that can't be right. And so, they seek to preserve the deity of... uh, or uh, Sorry, uh, they sought to deny the deity of Christ. And what they did is they basically said, Ah, you know what? He was just a guy. He He was just a man. He was just born a man. And he was the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary. And what we see is, at his baptism... That's when, as David says about him, today I have begotten you, right? Uh, And and God speaks from the clouds, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. So they sought to say, well, it was at his baptism, that's when he became God, he was essentially adopted into the Godhead at that point. Uh, because, look, God is one. So we can't have this whole Jesus walking around saying that he's God. That's, that, that can't be the case. He's adopted then into the Godhead or as Messiah. Then we've got the Gnostics and the Docetists. These are kind of, they're, they're a little different. The, the, the Gnostics, they have a, a whole... Uh, a a religious system, all right? They have a whole big religious system that we're not going to dive too much into at all. But when it comes to Jesus, both the Gnostics and the Docetists both kind of commit the same error. And the problem really is that they thought all flesh is evil. doesn't matter what it is, all flesh is evil. All material good is essentially vile and worthless. And Gnosticism and Scientology and, and some of those other cults now Have very similar connections. But anyway, um, so they see all matter as inherently evil. And so they rejected the idea of the humanity of Christ. Since it involves God who is holy. And the reason he's holy is because he belongs to the spiritual realm, they would say. So since the spiritual realm is naturally more holy, the physical realm is awful and evil and vile. How could something holy come to something that is vile? How could he be truly human? He, well, he can't be, since the flesh is evil. So instead, they said he, that he just descended, the, the God, the God the Son, as it were, just descended on this man named Jesus at the time of his baptism again, but uh, left him before his crucifixion. So this God was not really human. He never really became human, truly. And any appearance after that was just a, kind of a phantom. It was sort of a, a, just a mirage to them. It wasn't, wasn't real. So then you get the modalists. The modalists come along and they say that the Son and the Spirit are simply different manifestations of the Father different manifestations of the Father. You've actually probably encountered this one before. Um, <coughs> let's see. How many of you have heard of the uh, have heard of Oneness Pentecostalism? Anybody ever heard that? Oneness Pentecostalism or <coughs> Oneness Pentecostal. anybody ever heard the band, the Christian band Phillips, Craig and Dean? You've heard them? Um, they are uh, oneness Pentecostal. T.D. Jakes, oneness Pentecostal. Oneness Pentecostalism are modern-day modalists. So they basically say that God simply appeared to us in three different forms. How many of you have ever, like, talked to somebody who uh, may have had some experience with Christianity at some point, and they say to you, well, you know, there was God as he kind of showed us in the Old Testament, and he was, like, angry and mad all the time. And then we got to the New Testament, and then, and then he kind of appeared to us as Jesus, and, and Jesus was uh, kinder and showed us the way, and now he appears to us as the Holy Spirit. It's the same idea, that he, he, he's one God, but he just appeared to us in three different ways. Um, so, uh, modalism. You've, you've experienced this in a, in a number of different ways, but, um, uh, but essentially that's it. Uh, Then the Arians come along, and the Arians were a big one. All right, The Arians were a really fierce one to really deal with. In fact, they were the biggest reason there's a whole council that comes together to kind of go, what are we going to do about Arius, who was the father of Arianism? So the Arians come along, and they said that Christ is separate from the eternal Logos. So the Logos that we see in John 1, 1, the Word, uh, well, he, Jesus, who we know on earth, is separate from the eternal Logos. Those are two different things. And, and while he, uh, the, the Logos existed before time, or while Jesus himself, Christ, existed before time, what he really is, is a superhuman creature. So he's, he's created by God, but he's a little better than man. He, he's not quite human, but he's not divine either. He's something different entirely. He's this sort of superhuman creature that he really wants us to be. And, and that's what the ideal picture of man really is. And so um, what happens is in about 325, the church comes together at the Council of Nicaea and they say, We've gotta put it, we gotta, we gotta put some flesh and bones on what. The Bible is actually meaning about the incarnation of Jesus, what the nature of Jesus really is. And it all was around Arianism. And how do we confront Arianism and really say definitively, we don't believe that. That is not what the Bible is saying about Jesus. And so the Council of Nicaea comes together in 325. And uh, they produced out of the Council of Nicaea the Nicene Creed. Now, here's what I'll say about creeds. Um, just really quickly, creeds have a, a, a how do I say this, uh, a tenuous relationship with Baptists, all right? Some Baptists really did, did like them and love them and needed them. Some Baptists have pushed against them and not wanted anything to do with them. The problem is that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, Mormon and Mormons, which you face routinely and will face routinely, are modern-day Arians. And the way to defend yourself against Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons is to know what the Council of Nicaea said about Arianism some 1,700 years ago. It's really important that you kind of understand what's being said in the creeds of the past because that's how Christians were taught, was they committed these to memory so that when a person came and said, X, Y, Z about Christ that is in error, the Christian could go, no way, A, B, C. This is is what is true, not that, right? That infringes upon the creed that I know. So so they created this Nicene Creed in, in an effort to really teach the church, hey, commit this to memory. This is what we believe about God. So we summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ this way. Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man in one person. And He will forever be so. So, wrap your head around that for just a second. Truly God, truly man. Prior to the incarnation, there was no human body in the Godhead. Now there is. Understand that? Jesus will forever be truly human and truly divine. Prior to the Incarnation, he was truly divine. After the Incarnation, he is also truly human. What's that? Yes. Yeah. He, t- he shows Thomas the scars, <coughs> flesh and bones. We're going to talk about some of those things in just a second. But essentially, that's it. Okay, So here's what the Nicene Creed helps us to understand, the relationship both between, in Christ's two natures, but then also how, the, how how Jesus is also God, and how we can believe that there are three persons in the Godhead, but only one God. Alright, so let's see if we can maybe explain a little bit of that as the Word helps us understand it. Uh, this is the way the Nic- Nicene Creed says it. They state that the Son was and is before all worlds. Okay, so that's prior to any created thing. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made. You can tell what they're, what, what are they what are they trying to emphasize here? They say it a thousand times. And why are they, why are they saying it a thousand times? We really want you to get this. Alright? I'll say it 18 different ways if I have to. He's God of God. Okay, so here's God, the Father. What, what was begotten from God, the Father? God. All right, Eternal, co-existent with the Father, co-eternal with the Father. He was not made in any way, or created in any way. So you can see they're pushing back against Arianism, who would say he's a created creature, right? So they're pushing back, and they're saying, no, that's that's not true. He's begotten, not made. Being of one essence with the Father. One essence, you could also say one substance, one essence, one substance with the Father. Let's let's look at a few verses where they get this from. They get this crazy idea here from. He is the radiance, Hebrews 1-3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Or you might say his essence, his substance. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Christ we're talking about. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of God himself. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God. So what is Paul saying about him there? He is making visible what we couldn't see otherwise, right? But otherwise, the exact imprint of his nature, he's saying. Firstborn of all creation. See, that's right there. Where we read that part of the verse, the firstborn of all creation, everybody goes, all right, I'm going to go this way and think this about Jesus, and you're going that way, and we both said, yeah, we agree. He's the firstborn of all creation. We mean two different things by it, right? Us and Jehovah's Witness, us and the Mormons, they they mean two different things, okay? So that's why the Nicene Creed was kind of necessary to help clarify some of this. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Well, that rules out him being created, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah, it rules out him being created. If by him all things were created, did he create himself? That doesn't even make sense. Uh, In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Well, certainly he's a ruler or authority, and Paul's saying that, so obviously he's not meaning that that he's the firstborn creation. Uh, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Ah, oh, there we go. Firstborn from the dead. When he says up here, the firstborn of all creation, and then we see down here, firstborn from the dead, what is he trying to get at? He's the first one to raise from the dead. First one of many to be born again. Um, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But there again, Arianism walks walks this way and goes, yeah, it was at his baptism, that's where he was pleased to dwell, um, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on he- on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, um, so they have this. They come up with this this term, which is which is really helpful if you just Pause to think about it for just a second. What the Bible is actually saying about Jesus and what we believe about the triune Godhead, that they share one essence. So, if we were to talk about essence, if if I were to show you two people, let's just keep it two, okay? That's simpler, all right? If I were to show you two people that looked identical, you couldn't tell them apart. Their own mother couldn't tell them apart, all right? Identical. They had the same tenor of their voice. They had the same mannerisms. They had the same likes and preferences. They wore the same clothes. They, I mean, everything about them, hair color, eye color, everything was identical. And I put them in front of you. And I asked you, are these the same person? What would you say? No, why? Everything about them is the same, Shannon. They like the same things. They look the same way. You can't tell them apart. Their own mother can't tell them apart, and you're telling me that they're not the same. Well, why are they different? What? So, so, okay, so, so we may not even be able to get to it, right? We might be able to say, look, they're identical twins. Their DNA's the same. But they're different. Okay, the difference between those two people is what we call essence. That's substance. Nature. I don't know what it is, maybe. I can't even put my finger on what it is, but the essence of the two are different. We're saying the exact opposite about the Trinity. While they are two persons, three persons, the essence is the same. It's exactly identical. What's represented to you to us, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are three persons. Uh, The way I heard it said was they would, if there were three stools, they would each occupy a stool. All right. That's like they're three persons, right? They are, they do have a separateness to them. There's a father, there is a son, and there is a spirit. But when it comes to the nature, the essence of who they are, that is one. They all share the exact same essence, the exact same substance. That's what the Nicene Creed is getting at. And the way they got there was from Hebrews 1, 3 and from Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This is what Paul is saying. They, he, Christ, shares the exact imprint of the nature of God. They share the same essence. So much so that Jesus can stand in front of his disciples and can say, if you have seen me, You have seen the Father. Wait a minute, you say, Jesus, you've got a corporal body. You have a so you have skin and bones. The Father doesn't have skin and bones. What do you mean if I've seen you, I've seen the Father? You you obviously look different. I can't see the Father, and I can see you because you have a body. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the exact imprint of his nature. My thoughts are his thoughts. My will is His will. My desires are His desire. We have the, ex- I have the exact imprint of His nature so that if you have interacted with me, you have interacted with the Father. Savvy? Tracking? Um I so se- hold on just a second okay let me let me let me say let me put this caveat in place um because we're not talking precisely about that tonight there are there are scriptures that reference eh, something in this kind of realm all right so i would say that i don't have those in front of me but at the same time, here, here's kind of the gist that I think we should expect. And this may be a little bit more controversial and I'll lead this down a rabbit trail, so hold, hold on for just a second. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has always been the member of the Godhead humanity has interacted with. Okay? Tracking so far? In the Old Testament, Moses sees a burning bush. Who's in the burning bush? Oh. He says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. All right. So, no, no, no. (laughs) Not semantics. Very important that we understand the angel, not an angel of the Lord, didn't say that, the angel of the Lord And in fact, not only does the angel of the Lord appear to him, showing that he is different than an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord says, take off your shoes, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. So then he gives him the divine name, I am that I am, Uh, you tell them I am sent you. Um, So we get from the angel of the Lord Someone who is not an angel of the Lord, who accepts worship. Flash forward all the way to Revelation. You get John seeing an angel, an angel of the Lord, and being so overwhelmed with the glory of this angel, bows down and worships him. This is in Revelation 19. And the angel says, what are you doing? I'm a servant just like you. Get up and worship God. Right? Don't worship me. Worship God. So the reaction of an angel of the Lord versus the angel of the Lord is entirely different throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord expects you to take off your shoes when you stand in front of him. The angel of the Lord that, that is standing in front of Joshua when Joshua says, Are you, you for us or against Right, And he says, No. <laughs> like neither <laughs> I'm, I'm standing in a different place that, the angel of the Lord appears before him right so these are this is a, 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 a we call those Christophie. so I, I, I'm not necessarily prepared to go exactly there but I would say the second person of the Trinity has always been and I would say will always be the one we interact with throughout time ...since Father is invisible. Um, And I would say, too, that this is who Moses is meeting with. How can Moses meet with God face-to-face? And then later in the New Testament, they say, no one has seen God. How can both of those things be true? Did he meet with him face-to-face? Or has he not seen God? Which one is it? Well, the answer is yes. Well, he hasn't seen God. And no one has seen God. The Son has made him known, right? Because he's the exact imprint of his nature. So that's a digression. Sorry, Uh, but no, it's okay. Uh, So, what else do we believe about Jesus? He was born of a virgin of the Virgin Mary. Actually, very important when it comes to our own salvation that Jesus not be of the line of Adam, not be born of Adam, but born of man, all right? So that's super important. Uh, He had a human body. He had a human mind. He had a human soul and human emotions. And yet, was sinless. So he had all these things, yet was sinless. He wasn't condemned from the womb. Born in, in Adam. He didn't subsequently choose sin. Was completely and totally free. Um... And all those scriptures, again, I think attest to exactly that, that he had those things. And I think they're going to be pretty familiar to you. I doubt there's going to be any pushback on that. But if there is, there's passages there to kind of back that up. But His humanity was necessary for him to represent humanity as our covenant head. So look, look as an example at Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore... As one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. He's set up as another, a second covenant head, which we'll talk about uh, in a few weeks. But he's set up as an, another covenant head for us. And it was necessary for him to be human in order to be set up that way. Uh, He is has to be human in order to actually be our substitute. Look at Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. I'll get there in a second. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like. His brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful High Priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. So he had to be like he had to be man in order, in every respect, in order to actually stand in the place as our substitute. First uh, Timothy two five. He had to be our mediator. He had to be man so he could be our mediator. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He couldn't have been man's mediator if he wasn't man. He also couldn't be a godly mediator if he wasn't God. He had to be both. Um, uh, Where was I? Oh, yeah. And, And then he had to be man to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. This is one that we don't frequently think about, but is perhaps the most important. And it helps us understand the Bible, actually. What was man's intended role in the beginning? God created man in his image, and he said, let them have dominion. The goal, the role for Adam and Eve was to rule over creation and to spread the glory of God around the earth. That was their job, right? Basically, to turn all their progeny, all their kids, into worshipers of the one true and living God. That was their job. Did they accomplish that job? No, because as representatives of God, as, you might say, son and and daughter of God, born from God, they instead chose to rebel against God. An unclean thing, a serpent, came into the garden, and Adam didn't chop its head off. Right? The serpent was crafty and snuck in and tempted them. But when we get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the book of Revelation, we see a new garden with a new tree of life. And in this new garden, what's really interesting about it is the gates stay open and the nations stream into it. What doesn't enter into that garden? Any unclean thing. Why? Because Christ is the new Adam. And what has he established for us to do? I want you to see just a couple of these passages which may help to make sense. Let's look at Hebrews 2, 8, and 9. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, Ephesians 1, 22, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And he said, uh, Luke 19, 17, and he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been... What, what What is this a picture of, by the way, Luke 19? This is judgment. This is a picture of judgment that he's given to them. This is what is said to them. Well done, good servant. This is what we all hope will be said of us, right? Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, who's ever read that and gone, what? Ten cities? What, what are you... What are you even talking about? What does that even mean? He's appointing his servants, those who have been faithful, rulers over the created order. Jesus is. Jesus, as the new Adam, is doing what? What Adam failed to do. And what is he empowering his church to do? His people, his body. You acting like him, are to go out and share the gospel with people and make worshipers of Christ, right? You're doing what Adam was appointed to do to begin with, but now you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. So the reason that Jesus had, one reason Jesus had to be man is because he had to restore that role that Adam was appointed to and restore you to it. You get it? Understand? Tracking with me? Okay. Um, To rule over creation. Okay. Um, His full deity was necessary, and I kind of gave some scriptures in there just to kind of support the full deity of of Christ. We can go through that in a little bit if we want to. Uh, His full deity was necessary to bear the full penalty of God's wrath for man's sin. To actually save humanity since salvation is from the Lord. Jonah 2.9 tells us that. Salvation is from the Lord. It all comes from Him. He had to be, he had to be fully God in order to actually save because that comes from God. Um, to be a mediator between God and man and to reveal God to us. If He is not also fully God, then that means we have no salvation. So there are a number of ways in which you will encounter various doctrines that will seek to compromise one or the other. And I get it. When we talk about Christ being of two natures, that's the thing that sort of like really stretches the boundaries of our mind. But let me give you an example or some examples of where this comes upon you and you sort of sometimes, we're tempted anyway, to buy it hook, line, and sinker. All right, here we go. You ever seen someone illustrate the Trinity by a three-leaf clover? You ever seen this? You ever seen this? Oh, th- so, okay, this, this is one. There's another one that's an egg. There's another one that is, uh, 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 let's see, uh, water is another one, or H2O is another one. There's a few of them like this, right? The illustration kind of goes like this. Here's a three-leaf clover, all right? Uh, you got you got the Son, you got you got the Father, and you got the Spirit, right? And they're all part of one clover. So here is the Trinity. This is an example of the Trinity. The problem is, let me just take away two of those petals, and let's just give you one petal. Do you have a three leaf clover? You don't. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature is that what the bible says that he's one petal of the three-leaf clover no he's the exact imprint of his nature what you have here is one petal of a three-leaf clover you don't have the whole three-leaf clover you have one petal of a three-leaf clover okay it doesn't work if you were to crack open an egg people say okay you got the shell you got the white and you got the yolk right that's the Trinity right there. Well, no. If I were to, if you were to wake up in the morning and I were to say, I'm making you breakfast, I'm making you scrambled eggs, and I give you a pile of shell, are you gonna eat it? And I'm gonna say to you, it's eggs? No, that shell isn't the exact imprint of the nature of an egg. No. It's not even the best components of the egg. It's merely the carrying device, right? That is not what we believe about Jesus. Um, These are all ways of illustrating the Trinity that just end up in the end failing to actually represent what we believe about Jesus and instead represent a false representation of the Trinity, exactly what is condemned at Nicaea, exactly what the church is coming together and saying, that is heresy. If you teach that and believe that, that is absolutely false doctrine so really when we get down to it what on this earth could i sit before you as three that all shares the same essence nothing even if you go h2o well if i give you water but you wanted ice do you have ice you don't have ice even though they share the same dna there's something different about their nature something different about their essence Water can't stand in front of you and say, if you've seen me, you've seen ice. It doesn't work that way. If you've seen me, you've seen steam. It doesn't work that way either. Right? Questions? point of that was, it's best not to illustrate. Right? <laughs> we don't have good illustrations of Trinity. Go ahead. Right, Don't me, yeah yeah did, I and I, I'm with you on some of that that when, when, especially when it comes to this, uh, James's comment was, you know, here's God who made the sun, moon, and stars, and and, and that's you know, people want to parse and dissect and things like that, and, and you know, I kind of just accept it, He's God, He's above me, and and there that, yes, that is absolutely true, and I would amen that. I would also say to that, there are things that he has revealed against, uh, about himself in Scripture, and he revealed them because he wants you to know it. And th- th- it's, it's one thing if, if you know, he said, you know, my eyes are green, or something like that, and he, you know, maybe some details that nobody cared to really contrast. Here's the problem, is that not only does he want you to know these things, but there are people that knock on your door that will tell you something different. And if you don't understand it, and if you don't seek to know it, you're going to have a really hard time. And there's... I don't know if this is still true to this day, but it has been true in years past that Baptists went to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness faster than any denomination. That has always been true, and I don't know how true it is now with, you know, I mean, maybe there's maybe there's been a change of late, but... I mean, as of some years ago, even when I was in seminary, that was still the case. Baptists go to Jehovah's. In fact, from what I had heard from a Jehovah's Witness, a former Jehovah's Witness, that there was strategies around Baptist doctrine, specifically. So, understand that this is a a big deal. And, And for far too long, you know, we'll kind of push back against like, some of the more academic diving in, the more, the more things that, are, that stretch our minds, sometimes they can be, you are know, like, ah, oh, a little bit boring, and I don't know, I get lost in the weeds here. It's your job to apply yourself to the scriptures and understand what's happening here and read, read good resources that are gonna, that are gonna help you understand these things even better because, look, th- there's a real enemy out there that, that fires real arrows and they're aiming at you. And, and they don't come at you with necessarily persecution. They come at you with false doctrine. And the false doctrine is not some of the opinions that we have that are different inside the body. The, the false doctrine that they come at you with is, here's Jesus, but he's a little different than you thought he was. Here's Jesus, but he's, he's a little bit divinity, uh Humanity, uh Just subtle little changes. Because honestly, they say, he was the son of God. Do you believe Jesus was the son of God? You say to the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness, and they say, absolutely, 100%. And you go, well, good. Maybe we are the same. I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my porch not that long ago. And, well, actually, back up. They had come several times when I wasn't there. And they were, they were beginning to try to have more conversations with my, my wife. She wasn't entertaining it or anything like that. I'm just saying that she, they, they were you know, kind of wanting to talk more. And they came one day when I was there. And the, I opened the door. They didn't expect to see me, I don't think. And they said, um, can we read you a Bible verse? And I said, yes. Can I pick the verse? And they said, sure. And I said, John 1, 1. Because If you read, if you allow them to read any Bible verse, well, there's going to be a lot of Bible verses they read that you agree with, or they'll pick some verse that you've probably read back when you were nine and you haven't really thought about since. And it'll sound the same to you, and you'll go, man, they're pretty nice. You know, showing up, wanting to pray for me. But John 1-1 cuts straight to the quick. Here's the difference, all right, between you and me. So they read it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And I said, right there is the difference between you and me. You supply the A there before God, and it doesn't belong. What belongs there is in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, the divine Godhead. Three persons, one essence. That's the difference. And as long as we see that as different... You'll never be a Christian, I'll never be a Jehovah's Witness. So, what do we want to talk about? <laughs> right? <laughs> Did you see the baseball game? The other? Um, but it cuts to the quick, right? But they will they will stand on your porch and they will say all the same things you do until you think, well, they believe just like me. I don't understand what the big fuss is. They believe Jesus was the Son of God. They mean two different things when they say Son. It's important that we understand those distinctions. Camille. To start with these that are on the back of this packet. Um, so this will kind of walk you through Jesus being uh, God and not only just being God and man, but how we're saved, all the things necessary for salvation. Now, let me get to that. Okay. Um, of these, so he, he, here's two resources that I would recommend. Just keep on your bookshelf. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Just... If you can't, it's expensive, all right, it's not cheap, okay, I get it, it's a big, thick book. It's not something that you just probably are just going to sit down and just read. I mean, you might, Bob Bob Brooks will read it in a day, all right, but uh, you you might be just one of those really ambitious students and comb through an entire systematic theology in a week, okay, great, good on you, and that's awesome. But it's also something that you can go to and read just a little section out of and go, man, I'm really curious about what the Bible says about that, and I'm really curious to understand the Trinity, or I'm really curious to understand whatever, and you pour through that, and, and it's a really good explanation, plenty of verses to help direct you in that regard. I'd recommend everybody have something like that on their shelf. It's just good. Louis Burkhoff is the one right above that. It's also a systematic theology. Very good. little older. 1938. Language is going to be a little bit older language. Right? So you're going to have to Buckle up, let's just say it that way, um, is good. Um, again, J.I. Packer, Concise Theology, is really good. He's going to go through some of the basics of Christian belief. Wayne Grudem, now that I'm thinking about it, actually has a concise version of that systematic theology. It's like, I don't know, it's like 40 basic truths or something like that. I don't remember what it is, but it's, it's a more concise version. You might, might look at that. It's really good. Um... Of the ones on that list for the purposes that you're talking about, Camille, those are probably some of the best ones. Start there. Work your way through it. Have that on your shelf. You know, Somebody comes and poses you a question, and they say, well, explain the Trinity to me, or, or maybe there's something else you're like, I don't know anything about that, you know, or I've never even heard of that in my life. Uh, the kenosis theory in Philippians two. You're like, I don't know what kenosis theory is. You go to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, flip to the very back subject index. You find k kenosis theory. You go to the page where it's listed, and he tells you what it is. It's exactly what it is. Puts it in plain language. It's helpful. You know, those I guess are. Don't like that's <laughs> the shit. is precisely the wrong movie to <laughs> watch. Exactly. Yes. You're you're exactly right. Yeah, James. I'm telling you right now. You get, so you got in in the Baptist church, you have a church of people who read the Bible, right? Like you come and you expect a preacher to open the Bible and read it. And believe it or not, that's not true in a lot of denominations. You expect them to open the Bible and read it and actually preach from it. So they have a connection to the Bible, yet they also don't, on the most part, apply themselves to it and read it and really. Seek to understand it and dive deep into it. So you have people who revere the Bible and respect the Bible and and on the surface love people who love the Bible. But then underneath, don't really understand it. So if we take a Bible, that's translated by a person who doesn't know Greek. And it sounds a lot like your Bible. And they open it and they say, can I read you a Bible verse? And they read it out of their translation. And to you, it sounds just like the Bible. because And, and so you... Hey, I like this guy. He shows up on my porch and reads. He has far more faith and courage than I do. I don't show up on anybody's porch and read them the Bible. So I like this guy, right? But underneath, you're not realizing what they're actually reading is not the Bible. It's a it's an adulterous version. So it's a the Baptist Church is ripe for picking, right? I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. Real quick, and then we got to pray. Yeah. Yeah, the medicine that's on the inside is, it, it will turn your stomach sour. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But you all, but also realize, and I, I want to get this in right before I pray, uh, also realize that the Jehovah's Witnesses that you, you know have been deceived. You understand? Like, so, so they're telling you their gospel, pro- most of them, unbeknownst to them, have been deceived. The blinders have been, th- there's, a, there's a, a greater responsibility in teaching. The heretic, the Charles Taze Russell started Jehovah's Witnesses, the the, the the people up at the top have much more to answer for. Yep. Right? So understand that when they show up on the porch, my goal is to not just shut them down. And, and me and the Jehovah's Witnesses had a 30-minute conversation about why that A shouldn't be there, right? And, you know, that—so that, that so it was—I it, hoped for it to be a good conversation. And I said, please come back. And one of the girls was kind of like, wait a minute. <laughs> and so I was really praying for her, you know. Uh, I think this one I'm too far gone, but this one maybe, you know. Um, but, you know, she never came back. But that's the thing is, like, is really— I want them to, I want to have a conversation with them because they've been blinded. It's not that they're just like showing up on the porch trying to like deceive you. You know, they don't realize they've been deceived for the most part. And so, you know, you really uh, take that to consideration when you're sharing the gospel with them. It's not just to shut them down or win the argument or anything, it's really to help share the gospel with them the true gospel. Yeah. Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to come together and talk about what we see in your word, what's revealed time and time again, and what is absolutely fundamental to our faith, that you sent your Son eternal, begotten, not made, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, to come to us and save us, to take on flesh, to bear your wrath on the cross in our place. And we come together every Sunday to celebrate the fact that not only did he do that, but that he didn't stay dead, that he rose again on the third day. We are so grateful for the gospel, the fact that in Christ we have salvation, forgiveness of these sins, and eternal life in the age to come. We are grateful for that. And may we celebrate that more and more as we grow to know you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.